What's going on guys, Adam Comer here with the last kind of intro before the pod starts of the 2018-19 season ending uh, Duke pods. So I am not going to make you suffer through another uh, kind of speech. If you're interested in possibly being a co-host, just email dukebasketballcorner at gmail.com. You'll find the necessary information in the last two episodes. I went into more detail. That's all I have to say about that. DukeBasketballCorner@gmail.com. Um, as for this episode, I took out some of the audio issues, but uh, it's part of the uh, the long deep dive I did with Brent Wilkerson New a couple weeks ago. So as far as the content, who knows what I say? Enjoy that. There's really no editing going on there. I will say that uh, I do have a weird tick where I kind of I uh, switch up dive and slip for pick and roll. When I, when I keep saying slip for jab, and obviously I mean dive, also keep in mind that the information we give on recruiting and all that stuff for next year, which we don't even go into much, it's a couple weeks behind, so take that as is. Um, I am undecided as what I'm doing now, um, moving forward. But, uh, yeah, it depends on the motivation, depends on the enthusiasm from everyone else. A lot is dependent, but, I mean, if I see it's in high demand, that is something I will take into consideration. And if you, uh, you'll hear me say in the past episodes, if you can edit, which isn't hard, that would be huge if you are interested in being a coach. Appreciate anyone who listened to this episode, to any others, listen to any others this season or season prior, and uh, enjoy. Okay, welcome back. Adam Comero here with part two of the Duke men's basketball in 2018-2019 year in review. I am here with uh, Brant Wilkerson New from the Greensboro News and Record. We gave you an overview of Duke's season uh, some may just want to know what went wrong and that's all you care about. I like to kind of get more of the context of what went on. So we didn't say too much about each game, but we just kind of went through and, and gave our feelings at the time. Some, uh, some aspects for players, some aspects of the system stood out more than others. Now we're going to get more into just kind of taking a step back and seeing how, what really caused everything, what could they have possibly done better, um, how is the program looking, uh, heading into next year and ongoing. So this is where we can kind of, it's not just going forward in a, uh, in a linear method, it's just talking Duke pretty much. So Brent, thanks for joining me again. And now's when we'll really get into the context of uh, the program as a whole. So thanks so much. Yeah, awesome. No problem, man. All right. So first, let's start it out with uh, this season. I, I would say that they couldn't, they weren't able to generate the same energy. They, they had at some points in time. You could see the forced turnover percentage. It actually started out slow. Even though they were able to uh, come out of the gates strong, uh, Kentucky and everything, they, were, they weren't forcing a lot of turnovers. They were just forcing the other team to play at their pace. They were running off everything. So um, when they did start to force more turnovers, a lot of it came against uh, some of the mismatches. And then when uh, Zion went out against North Carolina, they were never quite able to get back on track. What, what do you think 
could have been done once they were forced to play more half-court offense. Is there something where you saw that maybe something was missed or a lineup change could have helped or a change in the system? Um, I think that it, it it never really manifested itself that much until the very end is that I think we had talked some pa- in the past about the way that Trey Jones was used a, as an offensive force rather than just kind of an, a spare part on offense that would basically come down the court, uh, throw a pass, and then kind of just get tossed away <laughs> for the rest of the possession. Um, he's clearly an, a solid offensive player. He, he was very good as an offensive player in the Nike EYBL, which is the the top of the line AAU um, circuit that there is. So, you know, I thought that even though he was not a great shooter this season, he could have still helped develop some things for Duke um, uh, offensively in terms of getting into the lane a little bit more or penetrating a little bit on the wings. I know that's a, a term that Kay has used in the past when he was talking about especially uh, specifically with Trevon Duvall last year was talking about side penetration was an area that they kind of struggled with when they went to that switch where they moved uh, Grayson Allen onto the ball more often than Duvall down the stretch last year is they were talking about penetrating from the side. And so, you know, I think there was a point where it became just, even though, even though most teams could not stop it, there was still, it was just almost too predictable as to how Duke's offense was going to run through RJ Barrett and, and Zion Williamson on every trip down the floor. One of them was going to get the ball and somebody was going left. Maybe somebody might get a screen. Somebody might get a dribble handoff at the top of the key, but no matter what that play was going left. So, um, I think there were some ways that Trey Jones maybe could have been used more offensively or at least as a decoy in, in creating more movement. Um, Cause that was a kind of a big thing is there's a lot of felt like there's a lot of watching down the stretch. And then and to, to the other end is um, I don't think that we saw enough of um, Zion Williamson's ability as just a straight up playmaker. <laughs> and he showed his court vision often in the NCAA and ACC tournaments with a couple of those just insane passes that he made in transition. And, you know, I'm of the opinion that uh, you don't always have to initiate your offense from the top of the keys. If you can work in kind of a, a little bit to the wing or you can work in a high post, you can still generate tons of movement. You can generate tons of passing lanes. And clearly Zion had the, the court vision and the ability to make more passes than we saw him make over the course of the season, even though he did make some incredible passes. I think that could have been very useful in, in creating a little bit more offensive variety for Duke down the stretch. Yeah, and just to kind of um, use the point you made at the end of uh, part one, I probably should have started off with this. I think it is very easy to just use the final result to make a referendum on the season. And you said it with the didn't manifest itself in terms of the half-court offense not being as efficient as you would hope till the end of the season. I mean, in my opinion, it did. It's just they escaped. They escaped because the other teams weren't able to take advantage of them missing free throws down the stretch. They escaped by the skin of their teeth. And it makes you wonder if they hadn't, if they had lost any of those games, would we have seen more of a uh, a change in some sort of the system? Not uh, not too much, but just a kind of a little bit more adapting. Because I said at the beginning of the year, that's going to be key, not just game to game within each game. I, I think it should be fluid for Coach K to use. I, I said this was the most, um, uh, the, I mean, every, all these guys, they can do everything. 
Like, and I would say use that talent to the best of your ability. And I mean, there's just so much that these guys can do. There's not much weaknesses besides shooting. So just use their strengths more. And I think we didn't see that enough at times. So, I mean, you could say if, if Christian Leitner missed, uh, the shot at the end of 1990 against Connecticut in the lead eight. Who knows what would happen? If Duke, if Duke lost there, maybe then they wouldn't have gotten blown out by UNLV. And maybe then they wouldn't have been mentally tough and ready to take on UNLV the next year. Maybe then Duke wouldn't have won the back-to-backs. Maybe Coach K, his, his uh, back surgery, would, he would have just retired off it. You never know. So it's just it's risky to say one play, one game can make a difference, especially when they escape by the skin of their teeth the previous two games before Michigan State. In terms of uh, more action being created, I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, Trey, absolutely. His pick and roll, it's the, it's the lowest amount of pick and roll Duke's run, at least it was since Synergy started. I think it's, uh, they started keeping track in like 98, no, in like 2000, something like that. I looked through it, and it's, it was the worst by far, or lowest, and pretty much all of it went to RJ. I mean, Trey got nothing. He got like 16.2%, which I said that DeVal should have gotten more last year. DeVal got like 32%. <laughs> and uh, like, it's unbelievable because both of these guys, they're not running that many plays. So while it, DeVal got 32%, that's just 32% of the plays he gets. I said he should get more opportunities. And Trey, he wouldn't get much either. So 16.2% of like the barely anything he ever got. It's just it was frustrating because you'd everyone would talk about his uh, assist to turnover percentage at the beginning of the year. All these assists they're all coming in transition. It was immediately it was made obvious. R.J. Barrett is going to initiate the offense. That was his role. Whoever wants to get mad at him, you're getting mad at someone who's doing what Coach K wants. At least from what I saw, what Coach K said, based on all that context, that was what he was supposed to do: is be that alpha down the stretch. Yeah, he could have possibly um, been a better playmaker in those moments, but I think that was what the plan was. And I did think he developed as a playmaker throughout the season and other aspects, but down the stretch, yeah, I mean, he he, uh, he had some struggles, but more often than not, it was just Duke. They did what they had to do to get to the free throw line. They just missed it. And either you, you escape or you don't. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I mean, in terms of let's – let's start out, let's start out like pick and roll. What like what what does Duke use the pick and roll for? Duke uses the pick and roll pretty much to uh, dribble off, and more often than not, I mean, a lot of it was shooting, um, rising and firing, like with Grayson especially. Okay, yeah, it's perfect now. Okay, um, yeah, uh, the pick and roll, a lot of it last year was Grayson just rising and firing, and it's it's fascinating that you say what you said about Deval with the side because he wasn't getting pick and rolls there. It was just he's being counted on to do to just basically ISO. And it's tough to do when you don't have any help, when you don't have any action created for you. And Trey, that's what if he was going to do something, that's what he would have had to do, just ISO. So meanwhile, you have RJ and last year Grayson getting 95 uh, high screens. I mean, Grayson last year with the um, – oh, I'm sorry. What's the set? The um, – with the with uh, with Bagley and Carter on uh, 
on the uh, high post on each side. What, what's it called again? It's, it's very obvious. Uh, I can't remember the name. Is that the um, horns? Was that, was yes, that? exactly. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I just had a brain fart. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah. the horns. I mean, uh, you would see times when he could just pick whatever side he wants um, to rise and fire for a three. And that's a guy that really struggled to create for others. He was never passing out of that. He was never hitting the roller. Rarely was he hitting um, the uh, – he was passing – rarely would he pass out of that. It was pretty much just for him. So it really wasn't helping the team. So you look back at Duke wasn't able to get their best player the ball much in uh, their loss last year with Bagley against Kansas. Now they weren't they didn't get the ball as much as they could have to Zion against um, against Michigan State. So there are ways to get them the ball. Like let me ask you, is it illegal to uh, to to use a high screen? F- for R.J. Barrett, with anyone besides either Javin or uh, Anquan Bolden, uh, Anquan Bolden, uh, Marquise Bolden, is, is it allowed for anyone else to set a high screen? It would have been pretty crazy to see Anquan Bolden out there. I think that would have had that. some success with that. But um, yeah, uh, no, it's, um, I'm, I was, you know, I think the using Zion and more screening and roll, screen and roll, or pick and pop, or whatever you want to call it, I think that. Um, obviously I think that would have worked a ton. I, I don't really know why that didn't happen. I'm not sure if he doesn't, you know, particularly, you never know what the reasoning is behind something, but, um, yeah, it's, I, I don't recall Zion being a, a screener a whole lot this season. I mean, it's just never been the case. It's always been the five who does that. So, I mean, whatever the reasoning was this year, it's pretty much just how K does stuff. And so let me ask you, Kenny Goins, did you see RJ having much success against Kenny Goins when he would dribble off and then they would switch Kenny Goins onto him? Trying to recall exactly. Um, I, well, I, I rewatched the game twice. No. And then, then you have um, Xavier Tillman, who, uh, Zion, who's guarding Zion. So can you imagine, though, the wondrous possibilities of actually uh, getting Zion to set a high screen? Then you would have RJ going against uh, Xavier Tillman, who is a great player, a lot slower than Goins. Goins is, he was an undersized, he was very undersized. He's like 6'7". He's speedy, so he can keep up with RJ. RJ was still able to get to the rim, but it would have been a lot different with uh, Tillman. So, And then you have Zion either rolling or popping. So it's just... I, it doesn't make sense. This is not like in-depth scientific like um, elements of basketball I, I, I'm coming up with here. It's just create action for your best players instead of with with just Javin or Bolden. There's a lot. I mean, the possibilities are endless. I, I mean, it's, and then you have uh, Zion. Too often he would just be kind of hanging out at the left side to to allow RJ an opportunity to, to uh, start at the right wing, then get right to left, which K, he, to his credit, he did a great job at throughout the season because with RJ, he struggles to finish with his right. So getting him somewhat of a clear out on the right side, more often than not, he was just so skilled. He was able to get all the way to the rim using that angle, but Zion wasn't able to be used at that point. So I think create more... In the same way you did for RJ, for him, who knows what can happen. It doesn't always have to be like that. But I think K, he just, I think we lacked a plan B too often. It was just plan A, and if plan A doesn't work, let's go to plan A again. So, I mean, we did see kind of um, sort of wrinkles. Like, I, I mean, 
with Cam, actually, you know what? I, I think it's very interesting because the most creative ICK is always on the um, on the blob, the baseline out of bounds. Yep. That's when you see K just work magic, and that's when you saw Cam hit the game winner against Florida State. Michigan State actually stopped it. It was they were running the same play, and Alex O'Connell just gave that away. He, if you if you watch that again, look how much Alex O'Connell's leaning, and, and that frustrates me. But um, yeah, I mean K, he's he's constantly adapting, drawing up no heats. He has the ability, obviously. It's just about whether or not he is comfortable with the players running it. And I don't know why, it, but it reminds me of... Did you watch the 2016 uh, Olympic team basketball? Yes. Do you remember a game... Is it, is it Serbia or Angola? Who, who does uh, Jokic play for? Um, Serbia. Yeah, Serbia. Oh, Okay. After that game, do you remember Paul Paul George giving an interview? No, what did he say? He said it's he I mean, it almost seemed like he was ready to say a lot more, but he's just basically just like we're not doing anything. I mean, it's just clearing out for ISO and we're we're not like this this offense there's nothing going on. We're really predictable. They know exactly what's happening. There's there's nothing there to surprise the other team. I mean, it just, and, and that's what you saw at the same point with the 2016 team, 15, 16 with Grayson Kennard and um, Ingram, the same thing, just spreading out and just going ISO. And that's why I compared this team. I said the defensive ceiling was a lot higher for this team this year, but outside of that, it, it, I was just honestly very fearful of it being the same exact thing as 2016. And it really, Zion is a freak. Like you couldn't, have, I mean, he just basically was able to change that comparison himself. But in terms of the offense they were running, there wasn't too much difference. And with Duke's lack of shooting, I mean, they had to be more creative. And I just didn't see that. I mean, a simple pin down or uh, some, somebody cur- like Cam curling, I mean, there really wasn't much besides that. So I think... I, more often, I would have liked to seen a plan B besides just a little more of Zion in the post. I mean, again, Trey, as you mentioned, there's just ways to do this. When O'Connell get O'Connell in just for a couple minutes at a time, because one thing he does really well is he moves. He moves off ball and create action with him. I, I mean, when I looked at like the final season stats, I saw like there's like three curls he ran or three plays off screen in synergy. Uh, don't quote me on that, but it's somewhere around that number. It's just like that's insane. I know he's not 100% in Coach K's good graces for big minutes, but he can create a lot of good things on offense. So use that. I mean, even if it's for just periods of time, I, I just think there was a lot more we could have seen out of this team to play, to kind of play to their potential more, in my opinion. Yeah, it's been interesting to see the evolution kind of of the offense, thinking back on the days of of J.J. Redick and just every, all all those sets that they ran for him, uh, you know, so many different looks that they had for him coming off the baseline, coming across the free throw line, like, they just found one way after another to get him free for shots before he kind of developed his game and into being able to get his own shot as much as he was able to in his junior and senior years there. So, and it's, it's especially interesting, you know, given that I, I covered UNC too, and, 
I think uh, Roy Williams said this year that he's never had more sets for one player than he had for Nazir Little this season. And to see the amount of structured offense that Carolina was running this year as compared to Duke's offense, which was more free-flowing and, and kind of just ISO at times. So it was really odd to see that switch over. Yeah, I mean, the thing you, that's most common when you have a young team is a worry of the team defense. And especially with uh, Cam, he played mostly uh, zone in high school. RJ, I'm assuming, possibly incorrectly, that he was offense first in high school. And Zion, he really, he pretty much was allowed to roam wherever he wanted in high school. So there wasn't a lot of structure those guys had dealt with in a high, with high school defense. So to get them in a system and communicate well, it was just so impressive with me. What it also showed was if they can do that, I didn't understand how Kay, he would talk about it after games that he went to more free-flowing because it wasn't working with the structured offense. Like, how about just change it a little then? And it's so tough to say, if you have guys that can just go get a bucket without any help, yeah, absolutely use that. But if you need to go to a plan B, I feel like you should have that plan B or at least make more of an attempt. And obviously, I'm not seeing everything that could possibly be going on. There's context with more context, more context that I couldn't possibly know about. But what I do see is too – I mean, I remember um, Bill Raftery saying, like, I mean, I, it almost made me laugh. He's like, why doesn't Duke do anything in half-court offense? He's like, just move a little. And I'm just like, oh, Bill, you're so, you're so funny thinking that they'll actually, like – do something like I get I literally get excited for like a pin down and it's, it's just funny not in a real funny way but it's it, I mean th- like it's wild how I've gotten used to this you can say oh they had injuries so they had to keep adapting and obviously a young team it's going to be tougher to kind of adapt especially when the injuries occur earlier in games but once you knew like Zion was going to be out for a little a couple games and Trey was going to be out for a couple games I mean you saw Tom Izzo I mean, he was just kind of piecemealing Virginia, I mean, Virginia, Michigan State together at times. I mean, he had like three main guys and then everything else. I mean, he called Cassius Winston as Tom Brady, kind of in the way that Winston, you could just put anyone around him, the way that Tom Brady, you can just put any running backs and receivers around him. Um, And they were able to still run a system. And I guess more, he had more experienced guys who could deal with that, but at the same time, there were still young guys getting in there and making an impact. Uh, Buzz Williams, same thing with Virginia Tech, but I will also admit that's another experienced team. So I can say it would have been nice to see this, but I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. So while I say it, it was frustrating to see it turn into 2015-16 all over again, I don't have all the context necessary to allow me to say that 100% confidently. Yeah, that's the thing is that we're we're always a little bit in the dark uh, as far as we don't get to watch practice. And it would be really cool if we did, but I don't think we're going to anytime soon. I did get to watch practice when I was covering App State. That was really nice and uh, helpful. And Coach Fox, who was there when I was there, actually invited me in to watch um, film with them one day, which was a really experience. Because and not only did I, I see on film just the way that he coached his team, but I saw what he the way that he saw his offense was supposed to run. And I saw the way that things were supposed to go rather than was actually showing on the court. So that was really helpful. And it would be great if every team around here did that. But I don't think they're going to anytime soon. So 
Um, I mean, it's a big, it's a big part of it is we, we could be, you never know what's going on in practice and you never know how well someone's playing in practice. It's possible that when Jack White went through that slump that he missed 27 straight threes in a game that he was hitting 25 out of 27 in practice. So it's tough to say, but um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we're in agreement that um, the Duke offense didn't become what it could have this year, probably for sure. So, I don't know. It just seems like entry passes would be a basic thing, though, because the amount of entry passes that were just thrown away by Trey and RJ in that final game, it's it's just curious. Did they not? Do you think? I mean, it's tough to say, do you know or do you think? Because who knows? But it's just odd that you have this guy, Zion, who can just dominate anyone if you get him the ball. Just simply get him the ball. And you and too often against Michigan State, they weren't able to do it. They weren't able to just get him the ball, and that's exactly the same thing we saw with Duke last year, with Kansas. This is two straight years where all of a sudden Bagley, he goes to the NBA, and you hear he can't shoot. All of a sudden, he's hitting mid-range shots. I'm not saying he's, like, knocking all of them down, but it's just you're seeing things which Duke didn't use much. You're seeing um, him slip the uh, pick and roll screen, you're seeing him pop out. Same thing with Wendell Carter. And it's just, you heard it with different guys last year, like Gary Trent saying that we, none of us were able to really show what we could do. And that kind of went under the radar. The only thing anyone cared about was DeVal tweeting a, uh, retweeting a dunk of his, which made everyone freak out for some reason. But, but meanwhile, everyone's ignoring the actual what, what people are saying, Carter saying he wasn't used in the best way, and I agree. It's not a, 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 an insult to Kay as much as just the truth. There's a lot yes. more they could have done. I mean, Wendell Carter is the perfect pick-and-pop guy. The most I, the most creative I saw them get was Wendell Carter high-low to Bagley. It's like that was like some sort of genius everyone was saying by Kay, which was just initiated early in the season. You have two guys that can really show more than what they did, and to really – it, it was tough to watch last year and Grayson having him be the guy who always had the ball to be ball dominant. This It's the same thing as with R.J. Barrett. And I'm not saying they don't deserve the ball, but just get that usage down a little bit. Yeah, it's, um, I was uh, of the idea that Marvin Bagley could have had a lot more in the way of touches further out from the basket. I mean, he, I mean you watched him play uh, as far as EYBL and in the uh, Drew League highlights where he was playing with the NBA guys, I mean, he's looking every part of a stretch four out there. And that, I mean, he's not, that's not what his game is like super built on. He's not going to be a guy that's going to like handle the ball every down, time down the court, but he was definitely a guy that in a few different situations, he could get a rebound and turn and go rather than just having to look for an outlet pass. And I think there could have been some situations where, he could have gotten the ball on the perimeter and driven his man in a lot of situations, given especially given the, the matchups that he had in college. I mean, it's probably not going to work in the NBA for him to drive on an NBA four man, but he could definitely do it at the ACC level. And Wendell Carter was a he was a really good shooter, and he proved that on a lot of those trail threes that he seemed to hit uh, a lot last year. So I think that's just kind of part of um, it's part of a bigger discussion about roster construction and putting talented players together and just exactly how it is that you build that 
build your roster and, and what talents you're looking for from specific players on your roster. And rather than just trying to smash together five guys, five really talented players whose games might not really match up in some ways. Okay. So how, how does that, uh, how does that happen? Because what I, I saw a report from Jeff Goodman, um, might have even been a couple months ago, that uh, Duke was thinking about not changing up totally the way they were recruiting, but just, just kind of getting more of a mix of uh, kind of guys that probably will leave early, if not one year, and program guys. To be perfectly honest, I think that's what he's been doing all the time. It's just now he's trying to like vocalize it. It just hasn't worked out the way he hoped. But what I see is that they do have a recruiter right now. Capel was amazing. And Capel's going to get the best guys, and you cannot disagree with what Capel was doing. Yeah. And he was fantastic. But Duke has uh, one of my favorite players of uh, of all time. I think I did a – 2015, I did, like, my uh, top ten favorite Dukies um, list. And uh, my guy – I think Chris Carroll was, like, number five. And all of a sudden – He's getting guys that kind of, I don't know, I'm not into recruiting, I haven't watched full games on him, but just the little bit, and we'll see, I could be totally off, he's getting guys that are like Chris Carrawell in terms of their mentality. I'm not saying exactly the way they play, but just really, almost like Virginia Tech kind of guys that Buzz Williams gets, really no, like really tough defense first, and just will do whatever it takes need to work on their offensive game. Like I'm, I'm just going on like Wendell Moore and uh, Boogie Ellis. Those are the two I'm going on. Those those guys, their attitude and their mentality, that's what Chris Carroll brought in. I mean, whoever doesn't remember, Chris Carroll was like playing, he was playing this, he was playing center for Duke. What was he, like 6'5"? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I mean that guy, you, he was just so mentally tough. And you, you got him, you got like Dante Jones, you got Rashawn McLeod. Those are the guys that are just... I don't. I mean, it's tough because you don't know if those guys will last till the years they did. I mean, especially Jones and McLeod, they're transfers. But like the, those guys, their mentality—it's tough to explain if you don't remember that time period. So I feel like Chris Carwell. Maybe it's just random. Maybe I'm even seeing it wrong or projecting it wrong. But he seems to be getting those types of guys. So I think if you combine those types with uh, them, just the overall crazy, most talented ones. I think that could be good. No, I think that's uh, that's the exact way that you have to build a national championship type of team at this point or a final four team at this point. And, uh, you know, like everybody's like Virginia didn't have any talent or whatever. Virginia is just program guys. Virginia is not just program guys. They, Kyle Guy was a McDonald's All-American. Uh, I mean, Ty Jerome was a pretty, pretty big time recruit. Uh, uh, DeAndre Hunter is a, a top top 30 guy from what I recall. I mean, and the, he's going to be a lottery pick. Ty Jerome's going to be a first-round guy. So th- those are talented guys. Those are NBA-level players that they've got in their program. But they're also they're kind of in that level of it's like the the Moneyball uh, hack that that Roy Williams pulled, where he got some guys that are first-round NBA talents and future NBA talents, but they're just not for one year NBA talents. They have some deficiency in their game, or maybe they're a little small, or they've got something they've got to work out that they need to stay in school for a couple of years at least and work out. So that's what you need. Um, and you, you pair up the, those guys with, you find a one and done here, you find a four year guy here or there. 
which uh, I was just thinking for for whatever reason, Antonio Vrankovic just, just popped in my mind, and just thinking back on that, I'm I'm surprised we didn't see a little bit more of him uh, late in the season, especially when he proved that he could play in the ACC tournament and really gave them a lift. So you're going to need guys like that, and you're going to need your Jack Whites. And um, I, I know I read a story uh, before it was right after Trevon Duvall committed. Because I was, I talked with Evan Daniels and um, a couple other people that are big into recruiting more so than I am, and just hey, what what changed? What did Duke change in its recruiting philosophy? And I mean, pretty universally, it's Duke didn't change their recruiting philosophy. It's that top recruits changed their philosophy that they were going to be one and done. I mean, Duke's still getting the same level and talent of players that they were. 20 years ago it's just that those guys are coming to college for one year and then going to the nba instead maybe they're going directly to the nba or just you know maybe not going immediately maybe sticking around a couple of years so and no i i do see what you're saying and i i think you're right about that that duke might be transitioning a little bit away from just restocking the roster with with five one and dones a year now um and because i think wendell moore is going to be uh, if uh, probably a couple year guy, because he's just a really I, he your your assessment game is pretty spot on. I've I've seen him play live a few times down at Peach Jam last year. Um, he's just a, a really good kind of glue guy. He's a big physical kid. He's he's got a good body for his age. Um, he's really um, he defends. He he he's committed to defending. He'll he'll do a little bit of whatever your team needs from him on any given night. And he comes from that CP3 program that. I'm not sure if it's just the CP3 program or it's the guys that he's playing with there. The, the, these couple of kids from Greensboro that I've covered, whose games I just love, um, Kobe and Kishon Langley, they're both going to UNCG, and they're just absolutely just the most hounding defenders I've ever seen and just really tough kids. And so I think that's a little bit of a part of it. And I think I think you're dead on as far as Carowell is kind of finding those glue guys because it seems like – that is something that Duke hasn't had as much of uh, lately. Is you could always count on there when there would be one guy in the lineup that was just a really tough kind of physical guy that was really set the tone on the on the court as far as defensively and emotionally. And and you haven't always seen that consistently out of Duke in the past few years, where there's just a guy like a Dante Jones that's somebody that uh, you don't want to say enforcer because it's not hockey, but he, he's a guy that you're not going to mess with. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, like, what you see a lot now are guys teaming up to go to a school. So, I mean, Jabari Parker really opened up a part of Chicago that um, may not have existed before, even though Coach K is from Chicago. But then the next year, you saw, like, Jaleel Okafor and Tyus Jones, they were best friends, and then, then, or not, they were good friends, and then they kind of worked together to get Justice Winslow. So, if you have three guys like that are you gonna say no because you want to uh use more of a combination i think it turned out perfectly because k had a quinn cook and an emil jefferson and a matt jones and that really blended well with uh the three freshmen then grayson kind of came in at the end but i think they got really lucky there with Justice Winslow. Because it's funny, I remember writing a preseason article. That was when I actually did watch a little more high school. Um, normally when I was kind of falling in love with the recruit, but and Justice Winslow was that guy. And Justice, I wrote an article literally comparing what Justice Winslow will bring to Duke 
to Dante Jones, bringing the exact sort of toughness that Duke has lacked for for years at that point. And honestly, I'm not sure if Duke has had since. And that was just so rare to have as a freshman. I mean, especially when you look at that at that tournament, by the end, you had Justice Winslow initiating the offense. But also, you could have pretty much any of, like, four guys initiate the offense. It was just so much... There's so much more diversity at that point. So when when you only have Barrett and you're not even allowing Zion to do much, it's just about Coach K, whatever trust he has in guys, it's impossible to predict because you would hope he would have that trust where he could just give the ball to Trey, especially what's odd is the way he would speak about Trey in terms of how much trust he had. And in terms of like... Uh, Javin Delore talking about how Trey gets to do things others don't immediately as a freshman. Almost in the same way you remember hearing like Bobby Hurley came in and Christian Layton was all like jealous that Coach K just gave Hurley the ball and said it's your team. And and Leitner like probably like punched him in the face or something. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean that's the feeling you got hearing what Coach K would say about Trey. But then on offense, you didn't see that. Yeah, exactly. And um, I, I watched Trey a little bit at Peach Jam. Um couple of years ago when he was down there right before he committed and um you know Kay and everybody was there for every one of his games they were they were right there on the sideline and um yeah I was I'm, I'm a little surprised by um him not getting more involved in the the offense this season but I do think that next season the ball will be in his, his hands because I don't see well really I don't see anybody else whose hands it could be in I think they're gonna have to initiate things a little more traditionally from the point guard spot with him. And I'm um, not sure if he'll play alongside of Boogie Ellis as, as much. Um, and then I, it really does come down to whether Matthew Hurt uh, is in there. And I think, uh, I think it'd be really hard for a catch and shoot guy like Matthew Hurt um, to, to turn down a chance to play with Trey Jones, even though, I mean, I know he can create his own shot, but just, the chance to play alongside of a guy that can set you up when, when shooting is your main thing, it's, it's going to be tough for him to want to go elsewhere. I mean, it's interesting to think about how, how Trey coming back it is. I mean, I, I, I'm I, K always says he doesn't promise anything, but with the way that he's used his point guards and with the way that the last point guard to really be set in that role at the end of one season and start the next in that same role as Duke's starting point guard, is John Shire. And in 2008-9 to 2009-10, the last player to be a point a starting point guard the entire season, and then in the next season again be the starting point guard, is Greg Paulus for his first three seasons at Duke, who ironically was then replaced by John Shire in his senior season. So it has been a while since Duke's had um, consistency at the point guard or continuity and with the way that Trey was used, I feel like something had to have been. Again, Kay says he doesn't promise, but I feel like something had to have been said close to a promise in terms of the way he's going to be used. Because if you think about the way Kay uses his point guards, they shoot threes. I mean, a lot of them, like especially the one and dones, they're used in a spot up role. And if they kind of get a little too aggressive, then they're either benched, they're removed off ball. Or they're benched or they just leave. I mean, if you think about the guys who have not been able to shoot, it's it's really fascinating. Even a guy like trying to th- – I mean, you have like Dockery. He improved his shooting over, over the years just so he could have some role in the offense. He came in not being able to shoot at all. And Chris Duhon, 
his first three years, he was actually, his three point rate was, uh, if not at 50% above. And then once he became the point guard in his senior year, it's fascinating. He actually played off ball more. So then he could drive and his three point rate went down. But when you look at the three point rates of a lot of these guys, it's actually interesting how Tyus Jones is one of the few whose three-point weight wasn't above 50%. And the reason for that is because he played with another point guard, Quinn Cook. So mm-hmm. he could play off ball more. So, but if you look through the history, whether it's uh, Jason Williams uh, or, or Shire for a year, or um, I, I guess you could say like uh, – I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, going through the history, I mean, especially Hurley. Hurley was many more. Th- it's, it's crazy that when the Duke lost to California – in like 93 um Hurley I think like 18 out of his like 21 attempts in that game or whatever against Jason Kidd were from three so everyone thinks of him as a great scorer but he wasn't using the pick and roll so it's basically just shooting threes and that's how Duke's point guards are used it's the wings that get the uh high screens it's the wings that get the pick and roll opportunities and a lot of times it's used to score it's not used to create for others and I think the lack of even using the slip is fascinating because if you remember the Michigan State game, then uh, R.J. Barrett was actually able to hit Javin a couple times just because Michigan State gave them no credit for being able to do that because Duke hadn't really used the pick and roll to uh, hit the uh, hit the roller or the guy who slips really the whole season. So towards the end of the year, Javin was able to do that a couple times and have open lanes for layups and dunks. And that was nice to see just because something as simple as that almost seemed like incredibly creative based on everything else that was going on with the offense, which is not much. So I, they could definitely use more um, pick and pop, more more slipping. But you have, but if you're only using it with RJ, it limits the options because he's 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 becoming better at becoming a playmaker. He absolutely improved throughout the season. But I just don't think he was – you should have given him that much of a load on his back. I mean, the the usage, the assist rate, it was just out of hand. When Trey, you could see the difference he would make when – I mean, RJ hit a spot of three against Michigan State that gave Duke uh, momentum. And that was just off a little bit of Trey giving a hard dribble into the lane, stopping at the free throw line, and passing out to RJ. And, like, that's all it takes, just a little bit of action – where it uh, the guy who was guarding Barrett leaned over towards Trey, and that and that's all it, all that was necessary for RJ to get an open shot from Trey, and that's kind of remind reminds you of uh, who's the guy in, like William Avery, like he was great at that, just like a hard dribble into the lane about the free throw line, then passing out to a shooter. Obviously, the pick and roll has changed things at times, but you could still use the short roll. I just think there's so many options, but. With the point guard system, it really hasn't changed much. Even with Kyrie, if you look at his PNR stats, it was he was like in the hundredth percentile in scoring, and he was in like the second percentile in passing. Like I think his passes out of the pick and roll, his teammates made like two of seventeen or something. Like Kyrie, Kyrie is Kyrie, but he can score, and that's what Duke uses it for. And I'm guessing a lot of those were off ball, not the point guard having the high screen. So it, it's just last thing I'll say um, because I know I've been rambling for a bit. Like when you look at the PNR throughout the years, it's fascinating how it dropped off the map almost since um, I think 2015 is when it changed for the, for the uh, really dropped 
Because before that, Duke was using it pretty consistently in a high percentage. And and then all of a sudden, it just K stopped, and he hasn't gone back, and it's kept going down each time each year to like 12% this year, which is among the lowest in the country. And it's it's very interesting to think about why, and it comes down to, I think, it's just younger players, K doesn't have trust in them as much. When he, when he used to be able to trust guys more, he would use them with more, I don't know if you want to say creative um, screens, but like he would give them more of an opportunity to just make plays the same way he gave Grayson that opportunity. And even a guy like Matt Jones, who is definitely not a playmaker, but just they had K's trust. And Trey coming back, hopefully that trust will equate to uh, more opportunities to just be a playmaker. Because Virginia, you could say they, they ran um, the block remover all the time, but with the continuity ball screen and even the clear outs, the biggest difference in them was just the trust to by Bennett to let playmakers make plays, to let talented dudes be talented. And it's almost the opposite from K, where... They, it would help to have a little more um, structure. Yeah, it's, um, uh, I'm in agreement on that as far as the the point guard. And I, I, I didn't even think about that much during the season for, I guess it's it's just so far from my mind now that, hey, the pick and roll is not being used for Trey because I guess part of that, you just can't get mesmerized by watching Zion and RJ get to work. But um, yeah, there, there was no pick and roll that I, I can recall. And I think that's, the exact type of thing that Trey Jones is going to thrive in. And I think you're, he's going to come back as a player that people offensively will not recognize next year. I think um, he's a better shooter than, than he got credit for this year or better credit than he produced this year, obviously, because I mean, there's, there's proof. <laughs> um, he hit some shots. Uh, I think some of that has to do with confidence. I think, when you're used to being a shooter or you're used to being a scorer and you're out of it for so long and you're asked to step in and, and knock down a shot, I think that's a tough role to be in. And I think we saw that with both Cam Reddish and, and Trey Jones this year. So um, I think he's going to be very effective, especially if he's able to play with somebody like a Matthew Hurt or um, an Alex O'Connell or Joey Baker. If one of those guys is able to spread the floor a little bit more um, because Obviously, the it does not favor Trey Jones in getting to the basket quite so much when uh, there's a team like UCF that's able to stand Taco Fall directly in the middle of the lane for, for 15 seconds of possession. So once the floor spreads out a little bit more, which it has to this year, there's there's no possible way Duke can be a worse shooting team in, in the next basketball season. So I think that's going to help Trey Jones out a ton, and I think just having the trust of, of Mike Krzyzewski is going to help, help him a ton and help put him in some, some more situations and I am surprised that you don't see as much as that because, um, you know, one of those things that Coach K has talked about is is their system is kind of geared toward an NBA style of playing four out and all that. Well, at the NBA level, I mean, pick and roll is one of the, if not the top kind of action that you have in your offense, it's one of the top. So I'm, I'm a little surprised that we haven't seen as much pick and roll lately out of Duke. Yeah, it's definitely not. It's definitely not geared toward the NBA, unless I mean he doesn't have the Warriors who have like everyone can shoot. I mean, if you have that style, then you can do it. But that's why I brought up Paul George and his quote because this has been an issue for Kay with his lack of creativeness on offense. But when you have guys who can just get buckets, it's tough to hold that against him. I mean, when you look at the year-end stats of like, I remember like 2015-16, their offensive stats were just 
off the charts, so efficient. So how are you going to say something should have changed with that? But this year is the first year where offense has actually been an issue. And you could say probably lost them the game against Michigan State. Their defense, while not forcing turnovers, their defense was really good. And again, especially with uh, with uh, Bolden and Delorier hedging out, I thought I thought the defense was great. I mean, yeah, you would have liked more turnovers, but it it didn't happen, and they were still able to lock down. The biggest issue giving up points to Michigan State was honestly just getting back in transition. That 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 was an issue. Um, but at half court, I, I was fine with it. Um, in terms of uh, let's see. Rotations, substitutions, bench use. Is that you? You think it's just going to keep going the way it is, where you'll see at times potential um, guys can come in and play their roles, and then again shorten up the bench as the tournament comes. Or do you think we could ever see K expand? I mean, history, as I always say, says no. And I think some feel that other teams use their bench more. I mean, Virginia in the championship game. I mean, you had. Uh, Braxton Key play over Diakite more often than usual. But besides that, I mean, Jack Salt played like 10 minutes. Jay Huff didn't really get any. Teams are not going like 20 deep or whatever people imagine it. You're going to play your best players. So in, I think it's tough to imagine K using some like uh, I don't know, huge bench or rotation system. Yeah, I, I don't that's I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Especially with him uh, bringing in and hypothetically getting a more exper- experienced uh, roster, the, the way that we seem to think it's going. Um, especially if he's got a couple of upperclassmen in here, the, those guys are going to get their minutes. And I don't think we're ever going to see more than an eight-man rotation. Um, remember, I remember kind of like, oh, yeah, a few years ago when, when they had the Harry Giles roster and all that. I'm like, okay, they can play nine or – no, they're not. They're, they're just, just not what he's going to do. I mean, it's proven time again, and I don't think that's going to change at any point um, in the near future, especially with the possibility of having more experience on your uh, in your roster and uh, a little less uh, – obviously, with that, you would think there would be less variance in the performance of your roster and keep more minutes more consistent. So I don't think that's going to change at all. Okay, so when it when it comes down to it, do pe- do people just hate it when uh, you live and die with the three, and then hate it when you when you don't shoot enough threes? Is there any middle ground? I mean, obviously this team, they they couldn't hit threes, and just to shoot more than like the bare minimum. But I guess the question is, the last two seasons, why do you feel the free throw rate has been the lowest ever at Duke? What 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 exactly might have been the cause of that? That's a really good question because it's not like Duke is just jacking up a ton of threes over that period. Um, you know, they they shot a reasonable amount of threes, probably more than they needed to at times this year. But I think a lot of the time they were still pretty good about what they were doing um, as far as shot selection on, uh, from beyond the arc, at least. So that's an interesting thing is um, – that I'm not really sure if I've got a good answer for because, you know, they're still attacking the basket just as much as they have in the past. And um, I think it's a, it's a matter of being able to finish those plays and not getting those calls. I know there were quite a few times this year that 
I, I do notice that, uh, that I did notice that, um, you know, I think Zion at times was not getting a lot of foul calls because refs just assumed that he could take it and it didn't look like a foul. I think there were some free throws lost there. And, um, I'm not so sure about last year. I think Bagley and Carter, I mean, obviously they were attacking the basket just as much as, as any, any big men that have come before them. So I don't know. Do you, do you have any stats on that that would back that up either way? Or is that just going to be my anecdotal bad opinion? Um, stats that would back up, uh, what exactly? As far as, uh, the amount that they're attacking the basket and, and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, are the, the three point shooting percentage. Oh yeah. The, the three, the three point rate and the free throw. Rate. Yeah. I mean the, th- the three point um, rate, it really doesn't stand out. From anything, and right now I'm just looking at the Ken Palm um, history for Duke, and yeah, it, it doesn't see, it doesn't stand out. And also, I'm not saying uh, a better free throw rate would guarantee success. I mean, I'm I'm looking through this in 2006, they they were at 45 percent, and uh, actually, wait, that that was a really good team. I was thinking the next year when they weren't, but um, actually, that's odd because 2006, it was it was basically just running for JJ and running for Sheldon. Um, was uh, Daniel Ewing gone at that point? Either way, um, that that that's an odd thing. I think a lot of those free throws were probably at the end of games when they were just kind of trying to uh, melt the game away. But I mean, just thirty three percent this season. It's just, I mean, it's and thirty four point six yeah. last year. It just really, really stands out. And I, honestly, I just think when you have guys ISO, it's going to be tough. It's it's going to be tough, and it's the same way Trevon Deval. You look at his stats in the PNR last year; he was fantastic passing out, and it was just a struggle to score for him more. Um, he it's it made me wonder at times whether it's kind of the same thing as R.J. Barrett, where if you don't shoot well from the line, you may something may come into your head where you might not attack quite as hard the basket, but that's probably overthinking it. I'm sure they were both going hard, but. It's just if you don't get any screening help and, you, and you're and you going against guys who know exactly what you're trying to do, it's tough. You basically just have to completely destroy your guy off the dribble. And some of these guys are good enough to do it, but to do it consistently is tough. Then you have the guys on the wing or just the wings who, who will get 25 high screens, and it's just odd. So I think... I don't know. I mean, but at the same time, R.J. Barrett, he was getting those uh, high screens, and he's the one who you would hope that he would have a better free throw rate. So at the same time, that kind of cancels out what I'm saying. (laughs) It could could be that everybody just got out of the way of Zion and Marvin Bagley for the past two years also and didn't try to foul them. Yeah, that could also be very (laughs) true. Checked out. I I don't know. No, I mean, those two guys got fouled as much as anybody gets fouled down in the lane, so... Um, yeah, it just might be one of those weird things like free throw defense. You never know how how, how you're going to be good or bad at free throw defense. Yeah, and um, yeah, and especially with how um, good uh, Duke was and how much how reliant they were on offensive rebounds, second chance opportunities with Zion. You would think there would be a lot of those that he would uh, have have had more and one opportunities. Um, let's let's see here the. Uh, I guess the turnover, I'm trying to think of just a couple more things um, before we call it a day. Is there anything else about this team 
that really stands out just in comparison to past Duke teams and comparison to what you think the potential of this team could have been or just in terms of what might change moving forward, whether it's system, coaches, individual players? What do you, what do you think they can really – some of the biggest things they can take away from a season like this? Uh, well, I thought this team of the – so this is the third team that I've covered since I came back here. Um, I think this team had by far the best chemistry out of out of any team that I've been around. It's ha- it had kind of the the best vibe in the locker room out of anybody, and a lot of that is because they they picked each other on on you know the recruiting trail rather than they weren't put together by by coaches and it wasn't Marvin Bagley joining the the class that was already here with Wendell Carter and. Obviously, that changing his role significantly. So I think these these guys really did like each other and they really enjoyed playing together. And so I think that that's a good thing. And I think that's uh, for for Duke to kind of go out and sell on the recruiting trail. Is I think all of these guys are going to leave with a really good kind of experience to share with people that are asking their advice about where they should go. And I think obviously they're going to have a ton of really good stuff to sell to the next generation of recruits because they're any of the stat that came out on um, Friday afternoon was that Duke's uh, games that were on ESPN got more viewers than NBA games that had been on ESPN and ABC this year. So, I mean, that's just another step in kind of the, the recruiting machine that Duke has engineered over the recent years. And I mean, that's the point of this whole one and done thing and, putting their salaries out there as you are reaching out to the, the best players in the country and you make them want to come to your school. And I mean, there's, there's nobody doing a better job of that right now than Duke with their media exposure and their internal, internal stuff. So I think as, as far as all that stuff goes, this year was just a smashing success for, for what they want to sell to get, to get the next round of kids in the program in the future. Um, on the court, you know, I think, um, I think we've, we've talked about um it was a good season and you can't really look toward two or three plays a shot not going in devaluing the season but also duke is a place where a good season isn't the same as a good season in a lot of places i mean at at duke and north carolina kentucky kansas you're thinking final four every season or it wasn't a good season so um i don't know it, it depends on kind of how you look at that sort of thing getting to the sweet 16 based on my math over the past from 2002 to uh to present actually I went a little further back than that i think that's 20 years the expected performance of a number one seed is to get to the elite eight and duke did that so um you know in in terms of that yeah but that's good but also i think if you look at the teams that did get to the final four you might say that this is a national championship that got away for duke because you know, you'd beat every every one of those teams that was in the Final Four, and I think Duke would have felt pretty good about about beating every one of them again. So, um, you know, just kind of a it, it, it's a tough year to to uh, put into context, and it depends on just how you look at things as a whole. And um, I think in, in terms of getting getting players in there, it, it's nothing but success. I think people are going to want to follow in the footsteps of Zion and get the media attention that he got. And, you know, they, they saw that Duke can put two all Americans in, in the starting lineup together and have two guys average over 21 points and, um, 
you know, do do these things. And I think K in recent seasons has proven a little bit more flexibility. And I think Duke's a little more cool than it used to be. Like I, I remember it used to be kind of that Duke was this viewed as this kind of rigid thing. And K was viewed as this rigid guy that was very tough. And this season he went out of his way and defended his players and stood up for RJ Barrett when he didn't have to, I mean, un, unprompted early in the season. So I think there's a lot of stuff that guys are going to look back in this season and like about, uh, about Duke and, and how they allowed those guys to play together. Yeah. And uh, same thing you were saying in terms of judging by like the final numbers or final result, that's a dangerous thing to do with this team. Cause looking across, I mean, Duke's numbers are just insane in terms of like the tempo is the highest in Ken Palm since like 2003. And uh, just all the stats are just out of this world. Good. I mean, besides shooting, but um. And that's not what happened towards the end of the season. I mean, it was just this team with the wings and the athleticism, they were built to just destroy any team that was, uh, you could say, overmatched. So there was a lot of those early stat-skewing games, which just totally wiped out, really, the rationality of the rest of the games. Because you look at, like, the last 15 games, the stats weren't even close to what it finally shows, but... They do count just as much. So it, it is interesting to look back. Um, in terms of the way Duke makes such an impact on uh, the media, with Grayson, a lot of people <laughs> were paying attention and watching for interesting reasons with him. And then Zion was just a phenomenon. Do you think Duke just being Duke will continue being that must-watch kind of event? Or do you think the last two years, I mean, before Grayson, I'm trying to think who else. I mean, we, I mean, you had Leitner, then you had JJ, Grayson, and Zion. Who else was a, a like a big name? I know Paul's people kind of found annoying, but he wasn't like must-watch. Um, is Who else really made people watch Duke? Uh, yeah, the, the Battier, Jason Williams era, that, that had yeah, people Jason watching. Um, I, I think, you know, I think, for whatever reason, uh, there was always just an American media obsession and maybe not just media, but, but fans with Duke's uh, premier white guy of the moment. So people watched the Singler Shire team. And I think I remember that team like a lot of people felt that team wasn't good enough to win a national championship. So I think a lot of people were kind of hate watching them and run into that national championship. And um I don't know about next year. Next year, I think, obviously, things are going to take a little bit of a step back from the media attention that we saw this year. I think anybody anybody short of Michael Jordan coming to play at Duke would uh, would cause a step back in media attention based on what we had because of Zion. But, you know, I think there, there are some really enjoyable personalities on the team. There are some guys that I, I enjoy talking to that have been great to deal with and, and Jack White and Javin's been great and Trey Jones has, has been great so far with us and uh, I'm sure he'll you know come into his own even more so next year with a second year and some familiar faces that he'll talk to a little more so um, Alex O'Connell has been interesting a few times I've talked to him we haven't really seen that much of him and um, you know I, it, I'm just curious to see which of the the personalities of the freshmen develop uh, Wendell Moore is not a super flashy guy and um I don't know much about Boogie Ellis, so it's it's funny how you know guys out on the West Coast we never really hear anything about until they actually get here. And then um, if Matthew Hurt does come in and 
Vernon Carey, um, you know, big guys just aren't as marketable, but um, Vernon Carey kind of comes from a, a good background of his, his dad was a NFL pro for a long time. So um, he's used to being in the spotlight. He's been in the spotlight for a while. So um, I think, you know, Duke will always be Duke in terms of media attention, but it's not going to be quite what it's been. Uh, definitely not what it was last year and, and definitely what it wasn't. Uh, and certainly a step back from what it was when Grayson Allen was there. Yeah. Um, all right. Last thing, um, players that you think, or how, how do you think they uh, might, what their role might be and uh, whether they can step up? I mean, you said that uh, Jordan Goldwire, he'll likely maintain some sort of uh, consistent ability to get some minutes off the bench. And I believe he has that Wojo capability, not necessarily the exact leadership. And obviously Wojo, I mean, that was just huge kind of bringing Duke back from not necessarily the dead, but just kind of bringing them into the new generation of uh, talent from the, uh, from Duke's uh, low point in like 95 and 96 to uh, the back to the rise. And, um, I I, th- I think he can still make an impact with defense if he I mean him and Trey they could just spend all their time shooting together uh, because both of them could really improve their outside shot and if you can team them up all the better Javin Delorier the so much I mean I was probably more impressed with his uh, again I don't know if rise is the right word but just what he was able to provide um, pretty much. When Zion went out, that's when his impact started being felt more. And I, I just, I was really, really impressed. And I think still there's some who are late on the uh, on the Javin train. I think he could, t- if he can take another step, that would be huge. Alex O'Connell is the ultimate, I don't know. Because if somebody shoots as well as him and can't get minutes for a team that could, I mean, you, you think about like a player that is necessary for a team that has no shooters. I don't like his defense. I don't know. Or is it's just odd to me. So hopefully, whatever the reasons were. I mean, I've I've come in plenty of times. I'm honest in my assessment of him. His defense is is uh, hit hit or miss at times, especially on ball. He can his awareness uh, with the off ball defense and his decision making at times on offense. But at the same time, his energy. And what he can provide as a shooter, it's just, it still shocks me that he wasn't able to get more minutes for Duke this year. Um, in terms of others, I mean, obviously, Trey Jones is Trey Jones. Um, am I, Bolden, I guess. Well, if you had to put a percentage on it, I hate these types of questions, but like, what do you, what do you, what do you think? Uh, stay or go? Uh, I'd say, I mean, 90% that he's back. I, I can't foresee. Oh, really? I, I wouldn't foresee Bolden going. Um, I mean, I think I think he'd be wise to enter his name and go through the evaluation and all that. But I would, my assumption is that he would be back. Hmm. That's actually interesting. Um, I know he's got he's got some things that um, NBA teams might look for or, or pro teams elsewhere. And um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I do. I, I one thing kind of stuck with me from my conversation with him at the NCAA tournament. It's one of those stories that, you know, you're preparing to write and then the team gets knocked out. So um, his his dad, uh, he comes from a military household. So I think uh, things are by the by the book in his family. And, um, you know, I think getting getting a college degree might be something that's important to he and his family. So I would think that he's going to be back. 
Yeah, I mean, you can get a degree even after going, but at the same time, yeah, it would be great to see him back. And, hey, Mason Plumley stayed four years. Obviously, Bolden wouldn't be the centerpiece like uh, Plumley was in 2013. But at the same time, I mean, I, could, I still think he could fill a vital role. Um, let, me, let me think. Um, for next year... There's Joey Baker uh, also. You're forgetting Joey Baker. Oh, my Baker. goodness. I can't believe – yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Sophomore Joey Baker. About, how could I forget about Joey Baker, who Coach K, from what I heard, he um, he turned into uh, a literal devil and threatened Joey Baker's life and said, if you don't play five minutes versus Syracuse, uh, I'm, I'm sending you to the pits of hell. Is that is that according to my sources? Are my sources on with that? Yeah, that's, that's pretty accurate based on what I've heard. Yeah, that's – that's been the like the weirdest like really invested story that people care about that very clearly don't actually care about the story like I know there's like, fans of other schools were talking about how blah, blah blah coach coach K doesn't care about the kids blah blah I don't know man it's I'm just going on what Joey Baker told us several times and he repeated to us multiple times that he basically begged to play all year like wouldn't let up on texting John Shire about getting himself into the, into a game. And uh, that that's how it happened. So um, that's the story that I believe based on what was told to me. Um, I can't prove otherwise, so I can't do it. So I'm not going to bother with it. Um, based, on, based on Duke fans' reaction, and like I tweeted about Joey Baker at the time, um, just in terms of exactly what you said. Yeah. And like immediately I get responses. I, I, he's going to be the most hated. He's going to be the next hated white guy for Duke. I mean, it's it's fascinating how I feel like Duke fans like want their their hated white guy and just to get mad at the fact that everyone hates the white guy. And I don't I don't even want to understand what that's all about. But I think that might have something to do with uh, so much attention on Baker. Because if it had been somebody else. Who knows? And maybe maybe I'm way off base, and I very well could be. But at the same time, I think it may just people might already just want Joey Baker to be a part of the rotation because they, they knew their hated white guy. <laughs> so, I don't yeah, know. that's the funny thing is, like, Joey Baker absolutely won't be that guy. <laughs> He's, like, the, the anti-annoying, like, I don't think – if he does play well, and I do think that he'll grow into a, a bigger role, much bigger role this year, I think – Unfortunately, it's going to come down to kind of him and Alex O'Connell battling for a spot in the rotation based, of course, on a, a roster that isn't even complete yet. So we really have no idea. But um, I think that it would kind of come down to the two of them having similar skill set and, you know, similar minutes that they're looking to get. So um, and and I'm with you as far as Alex O'Connell. Um, I know that his defense can be a little spotty. He plays. He plays with good energy, and I thought that, you know, the few times that he was forced in there to play um, major minutes, that he played hard, and you could see his effort on defense, and some people just aren't good defenders. It's I'm one of them, unfortunately, in my old age with my inability to move to my left, so I know the feeling. Um, but yeah, um, I, I found it kind of strange that he could never really break into the rotation. Um, I do know that in the preseason— K said kind of an interesting thing about him. I was talking about playing with energy, and he was very specifically mentioned Alex O'Connell and saying he's playing with great energy and, and moves well, but the next thing is kind of taking that energy and understanding what to do with it and just basically saying that he was kind of running around like a chicken with his head cut off a lot of the time out there, and the faster that he could kind of focus that energy, it would, it would be a, 
it would make a big difference in his game. So that was back in the preseason. Um, so I found that to be kind of an interesting comment for, you know, you know, you don't normally get a coach that's going to say something very specific like that about a player in the preseason. Um, and we saw O'Connell do that at times. We saw him look really good offensively at times, and we saw him make some big plays and um, just, I guess, especially, not... especially versus zone. Yeah, exactly. And I know uh, he was in the Virginia game for a few minutes and um, he played OK. Uh, I think he was, I know he's in the Syracuse game for quite a while and he was trying really hard to slow down Frank Howard. He just couldn't do it, um, which I mean, hey, that's it's a tough thing to do. So um, I think, you know, it's he and Joey Baker are kind of going to be the X factor yet again as to who earns that role in the lineup. And of course, that comes down to whether Matthew Hurt <laughs> chooses Duke, in which case. They've got a guy that's like a six nine knockdown shooter, in which um, you know you don't know exactly how those two might fit into the lineup. So um, I think Javin is going to be huge part part of uh, of Duke's rotation, whether he's starting or backing someone up. Um, you know, just his energy and his leadership are something that they they're going to need and, and be able to use. And um, Trey Jones just um, – I think he's going to be in basically an entirely different player on offense next year. I think it's going to surprise a lot of people. Is there somebody who has ever had a role on Duke who you think might be comparable to what we potentially could see Trey in next year? Huh, that's a good one. Um, let me, let's think back. I mean, even like Jason Williams, he was more of a scoring point because Duhon really – I mean, he was – he was like the spot-up shooting point guard. I mean, it's just you see these things over and over, so it's interesting. I mean, I've when I watched Trey, I was like, is this guy like Sean Dockery? Sean Dockery never got a bigger role. He was defense first, and it, it was more kind of uh, Daniel Ewing running point around that time. So it's tough to really think. Yeah, it's a tough good to comparison. Draw a comparison. I think he's just going to become. I mean, he's still going to be the same defender that he was. He's going to be the same playmaker that he was, probably a bit more so given that he'll have more opportunities to, to get the ball in scoring positions. And then I think he's going to add a lot to his game in terms of, A, knocking down open jumpers, and then, B, a little continuation of that kind of floater mid-range thing at the at the free-throw line that he does really well. I think there's just going to be more opportunity in that regard for him. So I think you'll... He'll become kind of a, a he'll become a player that teams at least will not be able to leave alone standing in the corner next year. Hopefully, uh, all right. So basically, to continue what we started um, at the beginning of this part two, I think it's dangerous to just use the turn the final tournament as a referendum on Duke. I mean, Quinn Cook started it all as I think I was mentioning this to Lauren on the ACC pod how it's banner hunting. People forget how Quinn Cook didn't have any banners if you want to count the ACC tournament. So it was more about just getting Quinn something. The NCAA tournament, I mean, it's always a crapshoot, as I've mentioned many times. I think what might actually be even more impressive, obviously it's tough to say anything more, is more impressive than the all-time wins and, uh, and the all-time championships outside of John Wooden. But if you think about it, in the last 35 years, the that the last thir- okay the last thirty four times they've made the tournament, which is uh, since the tournament expanded in nineteen eighty five, they have never been seated below a two, two times in a row. 
to think about that, I mean, it, do, it doesn't sound immediately impressive, but then to really think about that, the level of consistency and, and the high standard that is, because I would say it would be 35 times in a row. I mean, they missed the tournament in 95, so I can't say, like, years in a row, but the last 34 times they've made the tournament, they've never been seated below a two twice in a row. That's absurd to me. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely absurd. That is absurd. And I mean, winning 30 games every year is absurd and finishing in the top uh, three in the ACC every year is absurd. It's, you know, I think about, I went to UNC Wilmington. We've, we're, uh, we're brothers in CAA arms. So you think about your, the, your school winning 30 games and holy crap, you're, you're going to put up a banner for that every year. And, um, if you do that at Duke without winning a national championship, some people look down on that, which is kind of a ridiculous thing to do. So, um, no, it's it's incredible consistency. It's an incredible – another incredible season to get to an Elite Eight and be one shot away. And um, just when your program sets such lofty standards for yourself, uh, it's hard to get excited about those sorts of things. And um, that's probably not good. It's You, you should still – enjoy the stuff and enjoy the <laughs> enjoy the every you know step of the way for for six months of november up through the last game and um it's it's tough but you know there's 352 teams that <laughs> that don't put up a banner at the end of the year so um you know um duke's going to be in position to get to a final four again next year just like they are every year and uh, <laughs> there's a lot of teams that when you start the season will not be able to say that you're in position to get to a Final Four. So um, I'd say a successful year, just not as successful as it probably could have been given the amount of talent. Um, and, and that's okay. That happens to a lot of teams every single year. So Absolutely. And uh, I mean, another thing is in, in to make the Final Four in 1986 and then to have two straight years of uh, Elite Eights with the potential to make it back again 30, 30, uh, 32, 33 years later. I mean, just the difference in and the type of environment and the type of uh, college basketball, it's just changed so much from how it was in the 80s to then the, the 90s to the recruiting age. I mean, it's just he's able, he's been able to, to maintain those high standards and it's just crazy. You can critique, you can critique his coaching style, his decisions at times, but it's it's so ridiculous to even question his overall resume and his intelligence and the way he impacts these kids' lives as a coach and a mentor. It's it's unreal. It's the Johnny Dawkins thing. How close those two still are, and it's I mean it's 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 I don't know if we'll ever see this again from a uh, from a coach in professional or college level. It's always so ridiculous, and it's actually, frankly, funny at this time of year um, when people (laughs) – well, one of the things I was talking about recently is that, you know, idiots used to belong to villages, but now they have Twitter, so they belong to all of us. And uh, around the NCAA tournament is when we – I mean, they really come out of their cage, and we see things about how Roy Williams needs to retire and Coach K needs to retire and – I mean, the, just a couple of years ago, Roy Williams won a national championship and then came one shot from winning a national championship the year before that while his team was in the middle of an NCAA investigation. So, I mean, Coach K is the all-time winningest coach. He's won five national titles. And it's just – it's all ridiculous. I mean, people – and I'm not sure if it's a, it's a now thing or what, but just how hard it is to win 
a national championship, how hard it is to get to a Final Four. And as far as getting to Final Fours, no one has done it as much as Coach K and um, in the time period that he's done it. And um, just things even out. Sometimes you get a run of bad luck and sometimes you get a run of good luck. And you think about what Virginia needed to win, to, needed to happen to finish off their national championship. And it's just um, they, they got one crazy play after another. They got six points from Kyle Guy in a matter of 10 seconds and uh, three clutch free throws. And they got all these breaks that had to go their way to win a national championship. And along the way, I think people forget just how hard this stuff is. And um, maybe maybe every loss isn't a reason that your coach should retire or somebody should get fired. Yeah, now, now we'll just move on to the next one who can't make the final four. It's, I, I guess Sean Miller wouldn't be wouldn't be the best example now with what's going on in Arizona, but uh, we can say Mike Bray or we can say uh, Leonard Hamilton. They, they, they're 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 both failures, so they should retire. Yeah, John John Chaney should re- John Chaney wasn't actually a good coach because he never made a Final Four, so uh, that's the way I remember it. Um, Dominique Wilkins was a terrible basketball player, also. <laughs> exactly, it's, uh, the the rings argument has really um, it's it's really gotten old and. I don't think that I, I don't know when that argument really took off. I, I don't recall at what point in my life that it just became all about rings and this, that, and the other. But I mean, if that's the argument, then John Stockton and Carl Malone, neither of them have a championship, so guess guess we can't consider them great. Obviously not. And and Mark Mark Few's terrible too. Yeah, Mark so, Few uh, awful. All right, Mike Buckmeyer is he starting next year? Um, he'll get a start, maybe. Wait, is he? he no, no, he's not a senior. No, no. He, okay. He's not a senior. Um, he'll get five starts next year. Five starts. I expected more, but, uh, I'll, I'll settle on, uh, I'll, I'll settle for five. I'm, I'm trying to get him on, on my pod to announce his, his, uh, his prominent return as a, as a junior, because right now I think we're still, everyone's worried because obviously he was Zion's uh, bodyguard slash life coach. Um, this season, so is he going to follow Zion? Is he going to early entry doctors uh, program or whatever that would be? Um, so I think it's up in the air. We're all worried about Buckmeyer, and I just want a solid answer of whether he will be back as a junior because it is not Duke basketball without Mike Buckmeyer, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think on a more serious note, that whole thing with uh, between Zion and Buckmeyer was just kind of the perfect example of who Zion was and is and why he's going to be awesome in the NBA and why everybody loves him. Um, because his first reaction, you know, when he gets all this media attention is to invite a walk on, sit next to him in his locker room and think back to the Louisville game when ESPN grabs him for the post game chat. Uh, and the first thing he does is talk about how much of an impact Jordan Goldwire had on that game. So um, I think that's, that's what, one of the reasons that that locker room really came together. I think, um, they kind of took on Zion's personality in a lot of ways of just enjoying the season, enjoying the pursuit and um, Cam Reddish, despite all the stuff that he went through. And I think it was pretty clear that he was in a role that he wasn't used to and struggling at times, but I think he kept a great attitude throughout all that. And Zion really balanced out RJ Barrett, who (laughs) uh, was doing uh, his best impression of Kobe Bryant most of the season. And, um, just intensity and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it's going to be, uh, it, it was fun to watch Zion. I will, uh, it, it was, I mean, between Zion and Kobe white and just all the guys that, that we had around here this year, it was, it was a pretty awesome experience to be a part of. 
is Zion the best college basketball player you've seen? Or, or I'll, I'll change. Is did he have the best year, best season you've ever seen in college basketball? Oh yeah, and I think it. I think the crazy thing is that it could have been better somehow. It could have been oh, you're better. Absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. He, um, they were the way the roster was constructed is that. Um, basically he did all of that against teams that were standing four guys in the middle of the lane. So just imagine Zion doing that uh, against teams that are spaced out a little more. And I'm excited to watch him develop at the NBA level because of, you know, the, the defensive three second rule and the floor spacing and just the kind of, uh, the kind of opportunities that he's going to have in the NBA that he didn't have in college because of the way that college defenses can adjust to you. So it's going to be pretty fun to watch. I will only disagree if he goes to my Wizards because they will ruin everything except for Bradley Beal. <laughs> Bradley Beal is somehow not ruined, but they but they're trying their best. And hey, they fired Grunfeld, so at least there's hope because I often said my uh, my life goal is Ernie Grunfeld's job security. So now I need a new life goal, and maybe the Wizards. I mean, oh my God, it's just John Wall after a torn Achilles. Now he's entering. The uh, big, the max contract. But anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. So, is there any last points you want to add, whether it be about uh, possibly Zion, RJ, and Cam's NBA future, or just one last word on the season, coaching? I, I mean, I guess since this is the year end, I, I have to ask the question, which is always asked, even though who cares because it doesn't matter at this point. Who's going to be Duke's next coach? Is it going to be you? Is it going to be me? <laughs> Um, I, I don't think it's going to be me. I don't think I have the Coach K seal of approval just yet. Um, I think I'm a few years away from – I think he might have kind of acknowledged me one time uh, during the NCAA tournament. He kind of gave me a nod when I was walking down the hall. And I think it's a long process before you finally become like one of his guys. Like I know There's a few local media guys he kind of goes back and forth with. So I haven't gotten quite to that level. I only got. If you had to choose, so I, I, you, you will not be held to this. Just for fun, if you had to choose one person who would seem to fit, who would it be? Um, well, I think the obvious answer is Brad Stevens, but I mean, is he going to leave the NBA? Is he going to come? Well, maybe he will leave the NBA after this year. Maybe he's just sick of it. But um, no, I think Brad Stevens is kind of the obvious guy at the NBA level right now. Um, at the college level, I. Th- I would think that Duke is absolutely going to look to keep it in the family. So my thought, my thought is that with a couple of more solid seasons at UCF, Johnny Dawkins would be the guy. I mean, it's tough to know the X's nose. I will stick with the same guy I've been sticking with. If, if Coach K retired right now, it wouldn't be because not enough experience. But assuming he's, I mean, he says he's still good for at least a couple more years. I mean. I would think, yes, they would keep in the family, and I don't think anyone is as, would, would possibly be as – it's not about just popularity, but in terms of a giant round of applause for the hire, Nolan Smith. Oh, yeah. That would, um, that would bring down the house as far as – I mean, Nolan Smith was – and he's one of the most beloved guys in, in the history of the program. So Is he the most likable player ever at Duke? This is the people's champ, so I you're, think you're right. I think he is um, as far as just most beloved guys that have been through that program. I'd have to say that he's it's him and Zion basically, and um, that that was one of the other fun things this year was that 
you know, just the amount of Carolina fans and other fans of, of programs that were just, all right, I can't, I can't pull against Zion, but I still hate Duke, stuff like that. So um, Zion was transcendent in, in that way, maybe even yeah, more so I mean, than on the court. How scary was it, honestly, for, 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 for at least a day? Or at least longer than that, we were really worried that Zion would only have what was it, like 34 more seconds against North Carolina than Kyrie Irving ever played against North Carolina. And that's not a good stat, but he was able to come back for uh, the ACC tournament, so it made it all better. Indeed, and I am fortunate to have witnessed it. Um, it, it was uh, it was it was a pretty wild night. I'm that 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 is the the kind of the great thing about this job is. You never know when you're going to witness something like that, and I'm sure that I'll have another game next season that I'll say, "Man, that's one of the best games I've ever seen." So it's been uh, it's been a pretty cool three years so far. All right. Well, I think we've pretty much covered everything. I'm, I might have forgotten something, but I think if I did, we talked about another thing enough to uh, <laughs> to compensate for it. I think we covered damn near everything, and I really appreciate the time. Brand, especially with your job, it's uh, it's a late night, and just being able to bounce off thoughts on the season. Because although people are generally anxious to move on to the next thing, I mean, when you and in- when we invest as much time as we did into a season, it's tough to just immediately move on. And I like to have kind of these moments, or or just this podcast, I can go back to it and think what. What was I thinking at this point? And instead of just going on YouTube and looking up a game and not quite remembering how you felt in the moment, that's why, I mean, I tweet so much during the game just to kind of go back and and remind me of how of the development of the teams or lack of development. I mean, something as simple as Grayson Allen, looking back through, uh, I, I would Twitter search Grayson Allen floater. And I, I would find like 10 tweets throughout four years of just my thoughts on his floater during that point in time and how it improved. I'm just like, that's kind of remarkable as many at times uh, not great things about Twitter. I mean, that's that's a cool thing. So thank you for spending so much time with me. Now, hope everyone enjoys the deep dive on Duke's 2018-2019 season. This concludes part two. Brant, can you just remind everyone where they will be able to find you on uh, on Twitter and any other place? Yeah, sure. Uh, I guess when we, we catch back up for next season, uh, find me on Twitter at BrantGNR. It's for the Greensboro News and Record. Um, and that's at greensboro.com. And we will uh, – it won't just be next season. We'll be writing basketball stuff all summer. Hopefully I'll make my annual trip down to Peach Jam uh, in Augusta in July to get a look at a few guys that are planning to uh, probably head up this way or at least considering it. So we'll be having uh, – we'll have basketball stuff all throughout the off season, all throughout supposed football season and leading up to actual basketball season, which is going to start on – geez – like November 6th with actual ACC basketball. It's going to be wild. Yeah, that's, stu- that's stupid. Yeah, um, not a fan of that. But Okay, well, same thing I, I said to Lauren. If you if you ever uh, – I know the offseason can go slow. Not probably – you you're working nonstop. But in terms of just strict um, basketball-wise, in terms of just being able to talk about 
things other than recruiting. So if, if you ever want to come on, talk about maybe some of your favorite games, some of your favorite players, that, that would be a lot of fun. Or even, um, I know we both get into draft stuff. So uh, I'd love to have you on, just talk about some potential prospects. This year is atrocious, um, so we'll see what's uh, going on with that. But for now, thank you so much for joining me, Brant. This has been the uh, Duke 2018-19 year in review. As always, for the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast, I am Adam Comero. Thanks for listening. <laughs>